Hello, and welcome to the Mobile Dev Memo Podcast. I am your host, Eric Sufer. My guest in this episode is Alex Bauer, the head of product and market strategy at Branch. On Monday, October 24th, alongside the release of iOS version 16.1, Apple released its long-awaited major update to SK Ad Network, its privacy-safe app attribution framework for iOS, with SK Ad Network version 4.0. The industry was first made aware of SK Ad Network 4.0 at WWDC this summer, and we only saw public documentation for this fundamental and substantial upgrade to the framework with the release of iOS 16.1. In this episode, Alex and I cover four major topics related to SK Ad Network 4.0. First, the new timer system that accompanies the two additional attribution windows that have been made available. Second, the ability for advertisers to lock conversion values within those attribution windows. Third, the concept of crowd anonymity that has been introduced to SK Ad Network and how the four tiers of crowd anonymity regulate the information that is transmitted within postbacks. And fourth, how ad networks will adapt to SK Ad Network 4.0 and on what potential timeline. We additionally briefly touch upon fingerprinting and whether or not Apple begins to police that behavior anytime soon. As always, thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy this discussion with Alex Bauer. Alex Bauer, how are you, sir? I'm great. We're back here a third time for SK Ad Network. We're here a third time on the topic of SK Ad Network. I'm happy to be speaking with you today. You are calling in from where? I'm at a conference in New Orleans and Apple dropped these documentation updates while I was on the plane. So it's been an exciting 24 hours. Right. So we're with Alex Bauer today. Alex is the head of product and market strategy at Branch. And we are talking about SK Ad Network 4.0. So the documentation for SK Ad Network was released yesterday, as was iOS 16.1. I spent a couple hours going through the documentation last night, as I imagine you did as well. And we are recording this on Tuesday, October 25th. I'm hoping to put this live by Wednesday, October 26th. So this is just to say that this is all kind of new information. I think I've absorbed everything. I'm confident that you have. And we're going to walk through what we've learned in the last 24 hours. But just to give people an idea of the topics of this conversation so they can kind of jump around if they want. We're going to kick off the conversation talking about the timer system. There was some new information revealed about the timer system in the documentation. Then we're going to talk about conversion value locking, right? So the ability for uh, app developers to lock the conversion value in place during these different attribution windows. Then we're going to talk about the four tiers of crowd anonymity. Apple provided a little bit more context around that with the documentation. And then we're going to talk about what the timeline for adoption of this looks like for you know, advertisers, for ad networks, how long will it take to get sort of fully onboarded onto the SK Ad Network 4.0 schema? So those are the four topics of discussion. And then Alex, maybe briefly before we kick off, you can introduce yourself. I would invite people to go and listen to the previous episodes that we've recorded together to get the full background, but maybe just kind of high level, just to give your background briefly. Yeah, head of product and market strategy at Branch. We're an MMP amongst other things. My role means that whenever something exciting happens, like SK Ad Network 4 arriving early, uh, I get to spend a couple of days running out in front of everyone else to figure out what that means and explain it to both our internal teams and all of our customers. Provide a little bit more detail on, on what you mean when you say it arrived early. Well, Apple had been saying all the way through since WWDC that it was coming later this year. And actually, some of their website pages still say later this year. They haven't caught all of those and updated them yet. And then 
it just suddenly arrived yesterday in iOS 16.1, despite not being in any of the betas for that version of the update. I think it's certainly better that we have this now rather than a delayed rollout that might have dribbled over into the beginning of 2023. But it does mean that, yeah, suddenly everybody's saying, wait, this is live already. And I was roadmapping it, you know, starting this quarter because Apple had suggested there would be documentation ahead of the full public release. So it's, it's just a little yep. bit of an early Halloween surprise, basically. Yeah, the question that I have is, did any ad platforms get like beta access, early access to the framework, which I think it would be difficult because I don't know that it was active in the beta release of iOS 16. Maybe there could have been like a test environment or something that they could have set up. But I feel like that's probably not the case. My understanding, what I heard, was that some ad networks did get early access to 2.0, that they were mm -hmm. able to sort of test it. I don't know what that would look like because I don't know that it was live on devices, even in the betas. Maybe they even just got the documentation early. But I would be curious to know if that happened this time. And we'll talk about that later, why that would be important. Because to my understanding, no one had any sort of heads up on this. And I could be wrong, and this could have happened quietly. But this was kind of everyone was reading these documents at the same time yesterday, for the first time, is my understanding. I haven't heard about anybody getting like early access. I haven't heard of any early access either. It seems like the kind of thing where, unless they had a really tightly scoped beta environment, some of the postbacks would have started flying around with the version 4 signature and something yeah. would have popped up and it didn't. Well, exactly. Because I think what clued people into the existence of the docs yesterday is they were seeing the 4.0 tags or whatever in, like in, the, in the open ecosystem. Like they were seeing postbacks signed with 4.0 and that's like, okay, well, it must be live. Let's check the documentation. That's probably how some people detected it. I found out because I have a, uh, a notifier for the new WebKit releases, and this uh, one popped up and said, now supports Web2 App SK Ad Network, so I went digging. Yeah, okay. You've got a, a, a sophisticated setup there. I, uh, I learned from the Slack, from the mobile dev memo Slack. That's my alert system, which you know, tends to work pretty well. <laughs> yeah, it is the best distributed alerting system yeah. you can have, pretty much. Okay, let's jump into topic one. So the timer system, right? So to provide some background. So the previous configuration of SKI Network sort of 3.0 and, and earlier had basically two timers. And this is explained in multiple places. I've got a Quantmar thread about it, but you could find this information elsewhere. So I, I won't go into too much detail, but basically user comes into the app, a timer starts ticking down. If they trigger a conversion value either for the first time or they trigger a conversion value that's higher in prioritization than whatever previous conversion they had on five on you know recorded before that timer expires then the timer resets right so the 24-hour resettable timer theoretically could reset up to 64 times because that's how many potential conversion values are there are but that once that 24-hour timer finally expires there's a secondary 24-hour random timer that you know would then expire and then at that point the post back sent right so apple changed that approach Right? And so what they've done is they've created three attribution windows. It wasn't really documentation. It was more like a blog post that they released as part of WWC. Mm -hmm. And they talked about it. So there's three conversion windows, zero to two days, three to seven days, eight to 35 days. And what they said, not in that documentation, but in like a private setting, it was like a Slack or whatever that they had, was they were not getting rid of that random timer for the first post back. There would still be 
a random timer. I don't remember if they specified how long it would be, but they didn't say anything about random timers for the other two postbacks. And what we've learned as a result of the documentation that there is indeed a, a random timer for the first postback and the randomness applies 24 to 48 hours after the conversions registered, right? And then there are random timers for postbacks two and three, which are not always sent by the way, but we'll talk about that later, which are have a random delay of between 24 and 144 hours. So first of all, did I get any of that wrong? And second, what are your kind of, what's your read on that? What are your general thoughts on that? I got all of the details correct. I think that but this is one of the things that makes me wonder, did some someone have access to testing this? Because some of these changes, I wonder why they would have made it without some sort of live testing. But yes, they had clarified in the digital lounges, which was their, their Slack community during WWDC, that there would continue to be the randomization delay, even though they were getting rid of the rolling timer. And they basically, they've extended the length that that randomization timer can go. It used to be zero to 24 hours, and now it's up to six days. So it's a really, yeah. it's a really long delay that will still make it difficult to do any sort of time-based cohorting on these, which I think people were looking forward to with the multiple postbacks. One thing that's still on my mind is whether this, they specifically say 24 to 48 hours. Yeah. And I wonder if that's actually a, a typo of some kind, because it would make more sense if they said zero to 24 hours, but maybe they'll, they'll clarify that later. So, I mean, I had some people pushing back when I said on Twitter that they extended the random delay. And they were saying, well, no, the randomness is still just 24 hours. It just starts after 24 hours. And I do think it's correct to say they've extended it because mm -hmm. the approach that you took with SKI Network 3.0 and earlier was that you were timing everything from the point of the highest conversion value registration, right? Or at least the, the MMP partner, whatever tool you use to track all this stuff was, the app, app developers probably weren't. And now you're doing that from the install. And so the random component is still just 24 hours. And there is still like this baked in 24 hour delay like you had with 3.0 from the moment of the last highest conversion value to that timer expiring. But that was a known amount of time because you were following the conversion value registrations, right? And in this schema, you're not because you have the attribution windows. It, the randomness is still just 24 hours or the, the amount of time for which the timer could be set is just 24 hours in terms of the randomness. But the delay, the, the actual delay of the postbacks being sent has been extended because you're measuring this from the point of the install and you're not tracking those conversion values necessarily. Although we can get into that individually, although we can get into that because there, you do have that now the ability to lock it and say, okay, well, this is the mm -hmm. only thing I care about. So stop, you know, let's just start the timer now. But we could talk about that. But, but nonetheless, it still does extend the amount of time over which the timer runs. But that's not really important. So I think a lot of people are focusing on the 24 to 144 hours. And that's irritating, but I still think there's a lot of benefit here. And the reason for that is, you know, what portion of the user lifecycle this post back was registered in. And that's important because mm -hmm. previously, if you wanted to get like mid funnel or like mid stage or late stage context about what the user was doing in the app, like I'm talking about like, however you define that, but let's say it's after a couple of days. So like, I want to know what people are doing from day three to eight or now it's three to seven, right? Is this in window. The only way to do that would be to sort of somehow keep the conversion value logic alive by continuing to register them until you got something then in that middle part of the user journey and then stop. And if you did that, well, then you're just starving the ad platform of any 
input for that amount of time. And now you still do get to cycle back some early stage data while also being able to register mid-stage data via the, the second post-back window and the third post-back window, we'll call that like late stage. It's thinking about this more from like a product management standpoint. I want to understand if this campaign is driving meaningful user activity from some like middle stage point in the user's life cycle in my app, right? So after they've been onboarded, after they sort of understand and hopefully have like habituated the usage of this app in their daily life, I kind of want to understand if this campaign is driving like more of some behavior than another campaign. And the only way to do that would be to starve the ad platform of any input until the user reached that point. And now you get to do both. Now you get to register early stage behaviors with the first post back, the first attribution window, and then potentially later stage, middle stage behaviors the second postback window, and then later stage behaviors in the third postback window. So you're still getting more data, right, is my point. You're still having richer sort of data set potentially if the user gets there and you manage the conversion value process well. Is that how you think about this? Yeah, very similar. I think if we take a slightly cheesy analogy, it's like COVID tests. In the previous version of Scan, you only got one of those and you had to decide when you were going to use it. And now Apple has given you three COVID tests and you can deploy those. One of them will come early and then you'll have two more that you space out over the next month. So it's three times more samples than you used to get throughout the life right. cycle of the user. That's a good uh, metaphor there. Because that's, you know, with the COVID test, you don't know if you have it, it might not register, right? On mm -hmm. the test. Exactly, the exactly. That's a, that's a good one. So my takeaway from this is that I think, you know, people were, you know, rightfully disappointed that these timers are so long, right? I mean, six days for the two and three or five days if you back out the original 24 mm -hmm. hours, whatever. But I still think we're getting more. It's just, yeah, there's a delay. And ultimately, I mean, like the thing is with the postbacks from an optimization standpoint, and this was the problem, and we could talk about this a little bit too. The problem from an optimization standpoint with 3.0 was that Okay, I spin up a campaign, I've started a campaign or I've changed a campaign, like in Facebook, I've changed an ad set. Then, well, I have to collect data as if that campaign is new and think about it that way. And we talked about this last time, but then I run into that chicken and egg problem where, okay, well, I don't have enough data to surpass the privacy threshold because it's a new campaign, but I can't spend more on it because I don't have enough data because it's a new campaign, right? And so you're stuck in this place where like, do I just say I'm investing in data and I'm just gonna sort of spend money on a campaign with the understanding that it might be wasted just so I can surpass the privacy threshold to get this data. And that's a difficult position for an advertiser to be in, right? I mean, it's, it's risky. And so what they've done now with the course conversion value and the fine grained conversion value is hopefully provide some middle ground where at least you get some directional signal early on to understand whether this is like, you know, this campaign could potentially be high value or not. And if it's not, you just shut it off and it can be okay, then I feel a little bit more comfortable investing more money to sort of have it graduate into the next tier of crowd anonymity so I can get the fine grained post conversion value in the first post back. Mm -hmm. Right. And now a couple of things to point out. So we've got three postbacks now, but there's no sort of thread that unifies them. So there'd be no way to unify those three postbacks to a single user. They just they seem to be totally independent. There's no way to connect them. Now, the point is, though, the timing system for the first postback is extended, right? Because of the reason I discussed earlier. Now we will jump into the conversion value locking idea now. But so the first conversion value window is zero to two days 
with then the 24 to 48 hour delay after that, right? So we're talking basically zero to two plus 24 to 48 hours. You could read that a number of ways, but it kind of feels like five days. It's uh, zero to two is three, right? And then you've got uh, 24 to 48 hours is up to two, up to two more days. Now, I'm not sure I'm, that zero may not count as a full day or whatever, but like, let's just say it is for the sake of argument. Now that's five days. Now with the conversion locking functionality, what I can do is, and this is what a lot of people were doing in 3.0 and earlier because Facebook wanted them to, is I can say, look, what I'm looking out for is this particular event from a user. And if it happens in minute one of the app, then what I'm going to do is I'm going to say, stop, lock that conversion value. I don't need the full zero to two day window. I can just lock this right now and then start that 24 to 48 timer, right? So even in that case, if it was minute one in the app, in the first session, you're talking about up to 48 hours of a delay on the postback. But I can say, look, this is all I really care about knowing. And if I know this, then I want to stop observing other conversion values, lock it right now, and then trigger that 24 to 48 hour timer countdown. Mm -hmm. Am I getting that correct? That's how I interpret it too, which is effectively how you could have configured previous versions of scan to work right because as, as soon as you stop calling updates you effect you had effectively locked it and with apple's move in scan four to three predefined windows that capability had gone away yeah and i thought there was actually some interesting potential there around doing time-based cohorting if everybody was in fact using the same three windows. So yeah. that may be uh, maybe something that doesn't end up developing, but this is also the advertiser. Like the advertising app is the one that gets to decide whether they're going to do locking or not based on how yeah. they implement the scan code call. So it could be the situation where you see some advertisers say, well, I actually want the predictability of these three specific right. windows. I will not lock and therefore I'll get some time-based co-warding out of it versus others that will say, I want to get signal as soon as I possibly can. I will use locking wherever it's available. Yeah. And that's kind of my point, right? So what Facebook was doing earlier, and I don't think other platforms were doing this, but to be fair, this makes sense, but they were requesting that advertisers only observe conversion values for the first 24 hours in the app. At least that's my understanding. I don't want to say anything definitively because then I'll get someone from Facebook yelling at me. That's my no, actually that that was that was in the documentation, and it's okay. it's right. like it's widely documented that that was the Facebook best practice for scan, which right. means the that in reality it was the industry's practice because you don't exactly. get to have the Facebook version of scan. It's just scan. Everybody right. stops after twenty four hours. Exactly. So it was documented, but it wasn't a hard requirement. It was a recommendation. As yeah, a it was a recommendation. Practice, right? mm -hmm. Okay. So that's what, and that's what everyone hewed to. And then as you know, to your point, every, that became the industry standard because Facebook was the majority of spend and everyone had to adapt to what they requested. Now, the reason to do that would be to sort of circle back to what I was talking about earlier. If I'm starting a new campaign, I change an ad set, like we're basically starting from scratch and I need to sort of understand quickly if that campaign is working. Right. And so I, I want to cycle that data back quickly because that'll help me understand that quickly. And then there's sort of like less, either less spend is risked or I can mm -hmm. sort of truncate the amount of time that I have to wait at a lower level of spend. And that makes sense for a new campaign. But once you get to like a steady state, like I know this campaign works, I don't necessarily need that immediate feedback because I'm not making any changes. Now, there could be like swings in, I don't know, whatever audience reaction to my ads they could just be degrading in terms of the creative it's not working anymore i've reached some sort of saturation but the thing is like and so there's like there's a delay there if you're not locking that conversion value in quickly but the whole idea here 
was I'm less concerned at, at like a steady state of campaign performance, right? Than I am early on because I want to make that decision quickly. I need to know quickly, get context quickly around whether this campaign change or this new campaign is working or not. When the campaign's at scale and it's been running for a while and it's been performing, you know, with like pretty stable efficacy, then I don't really care as much. I'm less worried about big shocks. And so then I care less about, you know, locking things in and getting that turnaround really quickly. And so the ability, then stacking these, first of all, having three postbacks then becomes much more sensible when I have that early indicator of the coarse grain indicator, whether, hey, this seems directionally good, right? I don't get the fine grained full on six bit conversion value, but I get something. I get some indicator, right? You get the three basically tiers or whatever, the, the three uh, categorical variables that you can include there at the coarse grain level. That allows me to feel more comfortable at the early stage and then allows me to unlock spend because, hey, I don't have the Again, I don't have the fine-grained conversion value. This is a new campaign. There's not enough data yet. I haven't reached the level of crowd on anonymity that unlocks that. But I have reached the level of crowd anonymity that locks, unlocks the coarse grain. And it says, yeah, green light, right? So it's green, yellow, red, basically. Now, instead of saying, hey, this is a high LTV user because that's how I've instrumented my conversion value, it doesn't do that because it's coarse grained, but it says green. And so, okay, if it's green, then I feel comfortable spending more money to collect more data to graduate into the next level of crowd anonymity that'll give me the six bit conversion value, right? And so I think even though I wish that random timer would go away and I feel like you could probably, you know, who knows? I mean, this feels like an arbitrary choice. I'm sure there was some math that went into sort of backing into those numbers, but let's say there wasn't, I feel like it's just a matter of like being extra careful. Well, okay, I'm less concerned about it than I would be, than I was previously when not only did you not have the three windows that you were looking at, but it was binary, yes or no, did you hit the conversion value or not? And so therefore the random timer just prevented cohorting, but also prevented you from knowing anything about what happened early on. Yeah, I think scan four is unambiguously better than scan three in every way here. And there was just some inability to be exactly certain of how Apple was gonna define the specification from the WWDC presentation. So there was some wishful thinking on how it might work. And now we've got the final specification. It's still unambiguously better than what was available in previous versions. It's just not quite as much better as some readings of the first presentation might have suggested. Right. There was a potential for this to be extremely uh, pliable and, and workable, and, and that's not what we got. But nonetheless, it's better than what we had, right? And so I'm still yes. excited about it. I'm hammering on this because I saw a lot of takes on Twitter where like, oh, see, Apple's never going to give you actual attributions. Like, no, this is an improvement. This is a step in the right direction, right? This is better than what we had before. It's not like they just changed it up, but it still is dysfunctional as it was before. This is better. Yeah, they haven't. I'm trying to think if there's anything that somebody could say they've taken away as compared to scan three. And I suppose you could say if in scan three, you had implemented your system so that you fired the first conversion value immediately after install and did nothing else, then theoretically you would get the first signal sooner because actually not even like there's no, a possibility you might've got it slightly sooner, but it wouldn't have been like a day earlier. But I agree. They haven't taken anything away and they've given more. I mean, this is, this is better. So we talked about the timer system. We talked about conversion value locking. Let's talk about the crowd anonymity, the four tiers. So what we got at WWC was the video, the man walking through the changes in SCAP 4.0, and then we had like a blog post, but that was it. And they talked about the source identifier. So currently, or with 3.0 and earlier, you got a campaign ID, which was just two digits, right? So up to 100 values. What they had in the video 
was they showed you, okay, well, there's sort of three tiers here for the source identifier that are based on the crowd anonymity. And crowd anonymity is, it's a well-known topic within like the privacy field, but they are applying it with SK Ad Network for the first time with 4.0. Whereas before they just talked about the privacy threshold. Now they're talking about crowd anonymity and there's like tiers, right? And so what they said was like, okay, at the low level of crowd anonymity, and this was just a screenshot that they had in the video, you got just, it was as if you were in 3.0, you just got the two digits to work with. And then at the middle level, the middle tier, you got three digits to work with. And at the high tier, which would also correspond to the coarse grained conversion value, you got three digits to work with for the source identifier. Source identifier relates to like the campaign or the source of the user, right? And you could configure it however you want. It could be campaign related. It could be time of day related, whatever. It's your choice with that third digit. And then at the highest level of crowd anonymity, when you had enough data to sort of graduate to that high level, then you got all four digits and you could use those two additional digits. They were independent of each other, right? So it's not like zero to 10. It's not zero to, to 99. It was zero to 10 each one, right? And so you utilize them differently or independently. And so then at the highest level of crowd on an enemy, you got all four digits, right? So like theoretically, this could be like 10,000 values versus a hundred. Now that probably not the case because again, each digit was utilized independently and you could probably strategize a way to have them be aligned. But if you didn't, I guess my point is that the digit could always be the same or it could be just, anyway, I won't go into the details, but I won't go down that rabbit hole. But nonetheless, so you get up to four digits to use for the source identifier. Now, what Apple released in the documentation, and you see, you'd see that as kind of being three levels of crowd anonymity, which is none, right? And you get exactly what you got in 3.0, which is two digits. Then medium, which was you get an extra digit to work with that corresponding to the coarse grained conversion value as well. And then high, which is four di total digits to work with at the highest level of crowd anonymity. And what they talked about in their documentation that they released was actually having four tiers of crowd anonymity. So walk us through what they mean with that. Yeah, I think, uh, well, practically, it makes sense to explain the crowd anonymity and the source identifier together. In reality, this, the, the crowd anonymity concept ties into, like, it's a control for a bunch of different things in scan. So it's useful to uh, understand that independently. Previous versions of scan, you had the privacy threshold. It was a binary yes or no. It was like two buckets of crowd anonymity, but they just called it the privacy threshold. And WWDC, they expanded that to be three buckets, like you were describing, low, medium, and high. And then in the final release yesterday, they added almost like the free trial version, the, the tier zero, which comes yeah. with very extreme limitations. It's equivalent to the worst case scenario in scan three and below. So that's not something they'd mentioned in the uh, original presentation this summer, but now you've got this like the free trial version of scan. It's super basic information. And then you get the real buckets, which are tiers one, two, and three above that. And those tiers, they control how many postbacks you're gonna receive. They control how many digits of the source identifier, as you just described, whether you're gonna get two, three, or four digits. They control which version of the conversion value, whether you're gonna get the fine-grained or the coarse-grained. So they basically like, this is the brain behind the privacy censoring right. in SK Ad Network. And one thing that I hadn't seen mentioned anywhere up until the final release of documentation yesterday, that source identifier, you're only eligible for more than two digits in the first postback. Postbacks two and three now are locked to only two digits. So that's something that hadn't been clarified before. 
Yeah, my sense was when they, I don't want to say unveiled because there wasn't a lot of information. When they hinted at 4.0 at WWDC, it wasn't done yet. Like they had kind of some of the high level framework mapped out, but there were specifics that were, you know, TBD. And I think we got some of those specifics yesterday for the first time that probably were like agreed upon in the last few months, like between WWDC and yesterday. That's my sense too. It felt like this was a presentation of a tech spec yeah. back in June. And now the tech spec's been implemented and they've found some edge cases that they wanted to clarify with some additional functionality and restrictions. And that's what's led to the final version. Yeah, I know. Uh, actually, one thing I want to, it's not one of the high level topics, but it's important to kind of quickly uh, touch on is, is that web to app attribution only happens in Safari now. Yes, I think that was one of the things that had come up. And I, I know that you thought that the web to app addition to SK Ad Network 4 was like the most boring of the four yeah. changes. But that's something that they had mentioned in the digital lounge, like the Slack community, when somebody asked, they said it's likely Safari only. And now that's confirmed it's Safari only. So you won't be able to get web to app conversion from Chrome. Or, or Firefox, or a standard embedded web view. You'd have to use yeah. Safari or probably Safari View Controller. I, I'm right. guessing that will also support it. Yeah, well, yeah, I think so, right? Because WebKit is active there by default, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, but then I'm glad I didn't get emotionally invested in that because I think Safari penetration on iOS is high, but nonetheless... It's not I universal. Mean, it's, you know, it's funny. So I heard the explanation, some, you know, someone was hypothesizing as to why they decided to do that. And it was because this is someone's hypothesis, right? Like Apple really only treats Safari as a browser on the iOS system. All other mobile browsers are just sort of apps. So they're almost seen as different, like fundamentally different pieces of software. But Chrome doesn't have to pop app tra tracking transparency consent. Mm -hmm. So if they've created this kind of carve out for ATT for browsers, right? Other Safari included, right? Although it's like pre-installed, but if I download Chrome and I open it up, and that's an app that I download from the app store, I don't have to, there's no ATT consent. There's no SK ad network functionality for web to app attribution either. Now I know if I open Chrome and I go to Google and I search for Angry Birds, there's going to be app install ads right underneath it. Mm -hmm. Right. So that's always been, I feel like that was always the use case that can't be accounted for by ATT or any privacy. It's like, if you think about the privacy policies and they all sort of align next to each other across like a surface area of different use cases, that use case was not covered by anything was, was always my understanding. And, and it feels like, well, that, that continues to be the case. If SK ad network only is available within Safari for web to app attribution. I think this entire use case is one that just falls between the cracks of some different precepts that Apple holds about iOS. One is that browsers can only be a front end to WebKit. Right. Yeah. And the yeah. other is you're not supposed to be tracking. So those two things are in opposition here. Yeah. And they've implemented my feeling about this is they've implemented SK Ad Network at the app layer of Safari. Yeah. and haven't seen a, a need to go to the WebKit layer, which every other browser can use. So it's use case that isn't addressed. I would love to hear Apple tell me why I'm wrong, but they're generally pretty loath to engage. Okay, so 
last topic, ad network adoption. This is probably like the most important one, or at least like the most um, tangible issue for advertisers, right? Because they're not really the ones that need to be doing the grappling with this. It's the ad networks and it's their ad tech partners that, you know, they lean on to, and you're going to have some, some long nights, I imagine, but it's their ad tech partners that they sort of depend on to stay abreast of this stuff and, and to, to keep pace with it. And so my sense is this is, there's going to be a long adoption cycle. First of all, this is just very fundamentally different from 3.0. I think a lot of ad networks and ad tech companies didn't fully adopt 3.0. I don't, I don't think they were like fully utilizing it to the greatest possible extent. And now you basically have to throw away everything, I think, to adapt to 4.0. And so, you know, you're starting from scratch. And again, if they didn't get the documentation early, if they didn't get a heads up, that work started yesterday. So just like walk me through that. How, what does that process look like? And what do you think the timeline looks like where, first of all, it's 16.1 where this is available at the device level. So you need to get users upgrading to 16.1 and, you know, I'll follow your Twitter feed for updates on the progress against that. But then once device owners have upgraded, you know, then the ad networks have to like fully adapt to this before you get sort of like a hundred percent usage or whatever, like until you reach total capacity with 4.0. And my sense is that's some time, it's going to take a significant amount of time for that to happen. But walk me through that. Like, what does that look like? So first of all, I agree with your fundamental perception here. This is a system reset for scan. You can do the bare minimum to support functionality of 4.0 without rebuilding the system, but to take proper advantage of all of the new functionality, all the additional signal option that you have, you have to rebuild your system pretty much from scratch. So that is going to take a while. And you're right, it kind of started yesterday because of how the documentation was released. There's actually, um, there's three criteria that have to be satisfied for Scan4 to work. One of them is, yes, the user must be using iOS 16.1 or above. The other is that the app that's showing the ads and also the app that is advertising at both sides of the equation, they need to have built their app with the new iOS 16.1 SDK. So it's not an automatic upgrade there either. And then, as you said, the third is the ad network needs to support triggering their ads with the version four ad signature. So that, I think, is going to be the last of those criteria to get satisfied. The ad network's updating, like that's the final gate that will have to pass for this to reach broad adoption. I hope it's going to happen soon. But realistically, I I think it could take a while, particularly because the fallback to version three is very seamless. Like if you don't update your signing mechanism, you don't have to worry about any of the new stuff messing up your systems. And I could see some ad networks just deciding to stick with three for a while, which means we're going to have two different versions of data flying around for the same advertised app likely for a long time in future. And especially since we've still got the lack of fingerprinting enforcement floating around there that is not causing any particular urgency for ad networks to move to scan overall. I could see this dragging on for a while. Yeah. And well, then there's the other issue too, which we touched upon, which is you kind of want to wait to see what Facebook does before you invest any time into building out your adaptation, right? Because you don't want to build something that works against or is not aligned with how Facebook treats conversion values, right? Because if you do that, you're going to be subordinated 
to their preferences, right? And so advertisers mm -hmm. are not going to go out of their way to adapt to what you're doing. They're going to do what Facebook's doing and you have to sort of ensure that you're aligned with that. And we have no idea. Facebook has not spoken about this at all. I haven't seen anything, any, any sort of like public information about what, what their plan is. I, I haven't seen anything either. Maybe they were one of the few that got a, a preview of version four. Maybe that's where I could hypothesize. Maybe that's where the, uh, the locking mechanism came from saying we want more signal quicker and some large ad network is what uh, caused Apple to decide to walk that decision back. I, mean, I wouldn't be surprised if they didn't though. I don't think they have like an open line of communication at this point. Okay. I'm going to kind of hover here for a second though, because I think it's important for advertisers to understand like what they should be prepared to do. I know a lot of advertisers, even with just 2.0 and 3.0, they said, you know, look, there's no chance I'm going to be able to stay on top of this, to build tech, to manage this, to do conversion value management. Like that is just beyond my capacity. I am going to fully embrace like total dependence on ad tech partners to manage this for me. Right. And I understand that, you know, they might not be able to do things in the most efficient or sensible way, but that's a trade off that I'm happy to subscribe to. I, I'm not going to dedicate like one or two people to building conversion value management tech. That's just not something that I'm structured to do. And my sense is like, well, that just all of this management just got much more complex too. And so I do feel like, you know, we've entered a situation where there's probably going to be a lot more competition to run that on behalf of advertisers to be the platform that manages that stuff for advertisers. That's a, that's an offering. That's a product that becomes like much more valuable in this environment. It previously didn't matter as much just because SKI network was like dysfunctional, right? It's like, well, okay, that's not going to be the reason to switch from one platform to another because you know, SKI network doesn't help me. Um, but now it could. And now I feel like these product offerings could potentially become a competitive advantage. It's like, well, no, company A has the better SK ad network integration. They've got the better SK ad network management tools. So I'm going to work with them. Well, I, I guess just how do you see this playing out like with the competitive landscape in mobile ad tech? Is this something that becomes a race? Absolutely. I think you and I get a lot of mileage out of writing these sort of technical deep dive blog posts that explain how the system works, but your average advertiser doesn't know and doesn't really want to know. So I think what will probably happen is there will be a few very tech forward advertisers that see absolute optimization of SK ad network as a competitive advantage. It's the kind of thing that they'll be willing to assign an entire team to because getting that extra 5% of customization specifically for their business is worth it. But that's going to be a very small cohort because no advertise like there's probably less than half a dozen of those period. And they're probably the super sophisticated casual gaming apps that have the really tight monetization cycle. So for everyone else, this is a pain. It's just annoying. You have to constantly stay on top of it. And that's not something that an average advertiser should be doing which means there's a lot of opportunity here to extrapolate, to abstract, to take this complexity and just say, scan is a system that will allow you to pass some signal through about how your campaigns are doing. Work with the vendor that will make sure you get as much signal through as possible without you having to make the tech updates every time. Yeah, I mean, that's a great point, right? Like, so I had a project just a couple months after scan was introduced and it's like, hey, we're going to build an industry leading implementation of conversion value management, 
right? And we're going to use it to get valuable signal about the user's behavior back early, right? After the install. But we're also going to use that as the impetus for like other personalization tech in the app that'll hopefully then just improve ARPU and monetization, you know, post install. Right. And so I was like, great. Yes, I will help you with this. Uh, I, I'm, I'm happy to join this effort. And, you know, we invested tons of time, tons of money into building this really sophisticated infrastructure. And then SK ad network is just didn't work. It, it was dysfunctional. We didn't even get the conversion values back. So my sense is there were a number, you know, maybe it was more than half a dozen, but some number of advertisers that did that who are going to be just fool me once, shame on you. I just George yeah. Bush that fool me once, shame on you, <laughs> fool me twice, shame on me, and are not going to invest again because it was like well, we have no idea. First of all, the crowd anonymity thresholds are opaque, right? Apparently they're dynamic, right? According to the documentation, there's no way to back into like a number. Probably not a way to back into like a number that that guides our campaign spend there in order to unlock the value of the system that we build, and so like. I'm just going to outsource that. I'm not even going to try to build it. At least not at first. I'm going to wait maybe in a year's time when we have like more of a sort of baseline understanding of how this operates. Then I'll think about, you know, investing some engineering resources into building something internally. But until then, I'm just going to outsource this completely. And so my sense is that does probably become my hope is that these crowd anonymity thresholds are not so unrealistic that we're just back exactly in the situation where we were with SK Network. Well, theoretically, you could get more data, but you never will because the privacy thresholds are too onerous, right? But my hope is they're not. My hope is we do get the coarse grained conversion value without having to spend too much money, without having to risk too much money, can use that to make optimization decisions early and then graduate into the higher grain conversion value more readily, right? And then there is a lot more data to work with and there is a lot more opportunity to unlock using building technology on top of SK Ad Network. But that's my hope. But I don't think anybody's going to jump right into that because they're gun shy. They've been burned before. I could see that also happening. There's still no move to close off the escape hatch of the like the pressure release valve that many parties in the ecosystem are still using. So until that happens, I think the SK ad network adoption cycle is it's just going to be slower. People are gun shy. There's not a huge downside to not being a first mover anymore. Yeah. Well, okay, let's talk about that because you're talking about fingerprinting. And yes. I believe that Apple will kind of come out and do something. I think that'll happen this year. And then if that's the case, then there will be there will be an incentive to adapt. I just just because of the optics, I think. I think it became a lot more of a blight on their privacy narrative, right? That they're allowing fingerprinting, which to my and this is subjective, but to my mind, that's much more hostile to the user, to the user's privacy, right? Because there's no opt out of that. But my sense is that, and this is not informed by anything. I, I heard some rumblings, but my sense is that they're going to obstruct it. They're going to police that I, this year, I think. And if that does happen, then yeah, there's going to be a race to sort of adapt to 4.0 because that's where the real value will be unlocked. That will certainly be a catalyst if it happens. It would have to be, it'd be a policy-based enforcement now since they didn't do any sort of technical, we discussed that the last time yeah. we spoke, like a technical limitation on fingerprinting doesn't exist. So it would be policy-based enforcement, but Maybe they were waiting for the release of 4.0 to do anything about that. Well, that was my hypothesis once they didn't introduce any sort of technical impediment. But I think you don't have to do too much. Now, the problem is, so last time they made a conspicuous show of policing it. 
word traveled fast. It actually, the way it was discovered, like the, the way that it was became public was through the mobile dev memo Slack, because there were ad tech companies that knew this was happening, but they're not going to advertise that, right? They're not going to mm-hmm. broadcast that. And then it, it surfaced on the mobile dev memo Slack. People like people saying, hey, did anybody else get this rejection from Apple? This is crazy. And then, you know, you had like 10 or 15 people say, yeah, we just got that. We're trying to work through it. So if, if Apple wants to just sort of, you know, make an example out of somebody, they've also got to be convinced that doing that will then become public enough that everybody else sort of changes their approach too. And I don't know that you could count on that happening. Like, I don't know that you could count on that happening again, right? That just a bunch of people all of a sudden start, you know, maybe they will, but on the mobile dev memo Slack, just, that's not a, that's, you can't count on that. That's not a dependable route to publicizing some policy change, right? And so you either sort of go public with it as like a blog post, which I just don't see Apple doing. They would never do that. Or you do it to enough people where, you know, you just can't, that basically everyone gets that rejection and they're like, okay, I guess it's time. And they turn it off, right? Because it's a setting. When it's being used, it's just a setting in, you know, these various ad tech platforms and they can just turn it off. And I think you'd either have to go public and say, look, starting on this date, we're no longer allowing you to do this. And then you get into a, then you get into probably like a very sort of pedantic discussion as to what is fingerprinting, right? And I don't think they'll do that. Or they just start rejecting everybody who's doing it. And people are like, all right, I'm just going to turn it off. Or the third route is like you, you make an example out of someone and hope that it gets picked up um, and people just hear about it and they turn it off as a result of hearing about it. But that's, again, that's, there's no dependable way to do that. Yeah, my take on the previous example that bubbled up through the mobile dev memo slack, I genuinely don't think that was the case of app tracking transparency enforcement because the policy what? wasn't active at that point, even the yeah. first version of SK. I think that was the case of them finding something that was so egregious that they couldn't ignore it from other terms in the developer license right. agreement. And then we still haven't seen what could be construed as app tracking transparency enforcement because Apple's never actually made a move on that. You're absolutely right. So it actually happened before it was even released, right? Mm-hmm. It was in April. So it wasn't active yet. And fingerprinting has always been against terms, right? It's, that, wasn't, mm-hmm. that was not new with ATT. That was just highlighted in the ATT website, really. But that was not new. And so, yeah, you're probably right. I, my sense is the timing, it was not just a coincidence. Like the timing was deliberate, but it wasn't an ATT enforcement action because ATT wasn't live yet. It was just, mm-hmm. hey, these terms exist and you're doing this thing that breaks terms. Also, we've got this privacy policy coming out soon and we're really trying to double down on this whole privacy thing. And so you should be aware that what you're doing is non-compliant. Okay, Alex, this was a great discussion. Any closing thoughts, any parting words? I think it's an exciting Halloween surprise. I'm glad that this is coming earlier rather than, you know, middle of next year, because I think there is a lot of exciting new stuff that can be built on top of this framework. And I hope that it will be widely adopted as soon as possible. So it's just getting getting the word out and showing people how much better it's going to be once they move. Yeah, it's the October surprise in mobile yep. advertising. <laughs> All right, Alex, take care. Have a have a enjoy your time in New Orleans. Thank you. You probably don't need uh, my help in doing that, but uh, I'll wish you a good trip anyway. And uh, we'll speak soon. Sounds good. Thanks, Eric. Take care.